It's the Ruby on Rails podcast. I'm Jeffrey Grossenbach. Interview today with Zed Shaw. Disclaimer, there's some slight profanity and male body parts are mentioned. However, I think it's one of the best interviews I've been a part of. Hope you enjoy it. So a few months ago, I got an email from someone who said, Peep Code's great, but the Rails podcast is getting a little stale. That hurt, but I thought, well, who's the most interesting, intelligent, and provocative individual I could talk to? And, of course, Zed Shaw was the first person I thought of. Right here in New York City in the offices of East Media, where I believe most of the original Code of Mongrel was written. Is that correct? Uh Yes, actually, well, no. Uh, most of the code is written in my uh, very small New York apartment, a very expensive, very small New York apartment. And then I just came here and uh, blessed East Media with all of my wonderful genius so they could actually make some cash. Yeah, whatever, guys. <laughs> and no, so I did a whole bunch of the testing and everything here, and it was on a, a project that had to be... Can I tell them what the project is? Yeah, okay, so it was a VeriSign project for OpenID. So it had to be rock solid, secure, and everything. And so this is where Mongrel kind of became a viable server and uh, grew up very quickly, and got beat up and turned to dog food just about every night, and then refactored during the evenings and 4 a.m. with uh, Matt eating Chinese with me. Now, was the plan always to make it open source, or did you just eventually feel like, hey, we have a good thing, and and Verisign was uh, willing to make it open source? How did that happen that it got given to the community? Well, I actually started it as a LGPL code right from the bat. And uh, most of that was because I was actually working at the New York City Department of Correction. And they said, yeah, you can release it LGPL. And there you go. And, um, you know, because I had to kind of confirm with them real quick. But uh, really, I was doing all the coding on my own. And, you know, it was kind of my own thing. So, you know, that was the way it went. And uh, it was LGPL. And then when I started working with Verisign and them, uh, you know, with uh, Matt, East Media, and all them, uh, we just kind of kept it as a G- LGPL. And also, I kind of, I kind of didn't want to sell it or do anything with it other than just give it out. It was more fun uh, building it up and kind of, you know, destroying all competitors with uh, my little pinky finger. So <laughs> it was fun. Um, and then later on, I actually changed the license to Ruby, uh, Ruby's default license, uh, so that Apple could include it because uh, they were deathly afraid of the GPL v3. Um, I'm not sure. I thought they maybe they imagined Stallman coming in on a Godzilla costume and destroying Cupertino. I'm not sure. So that's why it's Ruby licensed right now. Now, with all the New York connection, I'm surprised it wasn't called Sewer Rat or something. How would you come up with the name of Mongrel? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Sewer Rat. Um, yeah, no. Uh, that would have actually been probably a better name. <laughs> No, so Mongrel, I I have this problem where I'll, I'll work on projects and I can't really really work on them until they have a name. And then when the name hits me, that's when I really work on it. So I actually have like 50 projects sitting in a directory that I don't touch because I can't find a good name. And one of them's one of them's like ZCRM. That's not a good name. So it, with Mongrel, it was uh, I hated Tomcat. I like dogs better than cats. Uh, cats hate me. I've been bit twice by cats. Dogs love me. So it's going to have a dog name. And then it was written in part Ruby, part C. So I said, ah, it's a mongrel, and it just fit. It was perfect. And then you hit Flickr, you search for pictures of mongrels, you get really great pictures, like the one that's on the uh, main website. Uh, I'm also interested in the marketing of open source projects. For a lot of people, if something becomes popular, maybe they personally will get consulting gigs or whatever, and yet for a lot of open source projects, people just like the fact that other people are using it, and it's 
being contributed or, or whatever. But even now, a lot of people think, well, Mongrel is really super fast, it's secure, and it's reliable. In reality, yes, that's true, except the, the, the speed part, it's really on par with fast CGI. Was that something intentionally that you tried to market it, or that just kind of happened and people ended up believing that on a very large scale? Uh, well, as you know, I'm a complete and total liar about everything. So um, the way to destroy fast CGI was to tell people it was faster. Um, that's only partially true. Now, what ended up happening was originally it was faster. When it was just a very small web server, it was a lot faster than fast CGI. But once you add all the gear that you really need to run a web protocol on a web server, it gets a little slower. Um, and also just the, the way fast CGI does its I.O. gives it an advantage. So I tell people nowadays that Mongrel's a little slower than fast CGI. Sometimes it's faster. It's a little slower, but the main thing is you can't extend fast CGI. Mongrel, you can extend. You can add your own handlers. You can beef that thing up. You can you know push stuff out in the Mongrel, run Merb, all those things. You can't do that with fast CGI. It's not about speed. It's about the potential speed. So fast CGI can go faster, but it's not as extensible as Mongrel. Um, now, the marketing of it was uh, I had Mongrel up, and it was, you know, we were getting traction from it uh, from East Media. It was a lot of fun. I put it out, and then, um, you know, the problem is, is people won't really use tech unless there's some kind of like, you know, marketing thing that sucks them in. It's kind of sad. I mean, it really it should be that good tech kind of wins out, but no, you got to have the gimmicks and the marketing and all that stuff. So, my marketing plan was more to be semi subversive anti marketing marketing. So, so if you notice, if you go to the Mongrel website and you look up how to become certified, you're not really getting a certification recommendation. It's called the Mudcrap CE certificate, and you know it's, it basically tells companies to go screw themselves, right? Um, so it's marketed, but it's marketed in a really fun way. And what I did is the really funny part is I went, I grabbed the template from like openwebdesign.org or something like that, downloaded it. I switched out a bunch of the photos with some from Flickr. I gave the dudes credit for the photos, the guy for the, who did the template credit. It took me a whole seven hours. I used WebGen to write up the content and the copy that's in it, and then I put it up online. And if you go look at the graph you can of like downloads, you can see that month, that's when I put it up, and it's like a 10 times increase in the number of people going to it. Now I'm probably exaggerating, but it's a huge increase. And so... You know, the sad side of it is that you do have to have some kind of marketing. I think a lot of open source projects now are all viral marketing. They're all just people who know, are in the know and kind of under, you know, talk about it and stuff. But uh, for the most part, uh, if you have some kind of just very simple, straightforward uh, marketing of a project, it really helps. And I think the number one thing that helps is having really good documentation. If you don't have good docs, people can't figure out your stuff. And actually, if you can't write good docs, your stuff probably sucks. It's probably not usable. So if you're able to write about it, then you're able, probably able to use it. So if you look at the Mongrel site and you look at the code and you look at the documentation, I think there's like twice as much documentation as there is code in the Mongrel project on just like the comments. And then we've got docs in the main directory and you can download all the, the raw uh, documentation for it. And we got a book. Um, just the documentation for it dwarfs the actual code for Mongrel. And I think that's really what gives it its advantage. Well, like you said, not only can you extend Mongrel itself, but it works real well with other servers, Apache, and Nginx. At, uh, on Saturday, you were mentioning something briefly about how you're using a Rails app page cached within Mongrel and then server-side includes within Nginx to really uh, make that a lot faster. How did that work? So right now what I'm playing with um, 
and we're still trying to see if it if it'll work completely as well as I think. But so far, it's you know the tests are showing it's really good. And what you have is you have this problem where you have page caching, and you have a little part that has to be dynamic. So the ninety percent of the page can be static, and you just need this one little part to be re-updated or refreshed or something. And even maybe that little part has just has a different timing on its own page caching or its own partials. So what people use now is partial caching. What I want to do and what I've been playing with is you can use SSI, server-side includes, and Nginx has the ability to actually make HTTP requests on its includes. So what you do is you wrap that, and it also has the ability to do block replacement. So you can put in a stub content, and then you can tell Nginx and replace that block with this include from that back-end server. So then you page cache that main page. It goes and does a back-end request to your copy controller or whatever and pulls up whatever you asked it to pull up and then serves up the whole page. So if then on your copy controller, you start doing um, page caching for that, page caching, quote-unquote. It's a whole controller with a little bit of copy, but Nginx parses it, throws it into your, into your main page and sends it off. You get basically the best of both worlds. You get the page cache components in your page at different intervals and different times. So it's a huge speed boost. That's cool. It's great to see. It seems like we have to go through this process of learning all the different pieces and then using them together, and it can definitely be tons more powerful with all that. One thing I've always been fascinated whenever I've talked to you about it was just your personal process of development. You're definitely someone who tries to pick the best tools and customize them to make them work as well as you can. And you also have something where you let your you keep track of your bug rate and, and how many bugs you're writing and tests that fail, and then you adjust your process. How does that work? Uh, yeah, so that's um, not recommended for everyone. You have to basically uh, be really, really disciplined. And I'm actually not really, really disciplined. I just I'm doing it on one project on my Utu project, and I'm trying out. Uh, basically, it's kind of like a quality control process, right? Statistical quality control. And all I do is I track a bunch of metrics that don't necessarily say how many bugs are exactly, but they're indicators of the bugs. And I track them over time. And then I use statistics to tell me if I'm getting, if I'm starting to suck or if I'm improving. And I'm doing mostly C coding on that project. So a lot of this is I'm running a pro- my program under Valgrind with heavy testing. And I track my, what my test coverage is. And then it basically just a series of numbers stream across my screen as I code. And it's kind of like auto-test when I compile the thing, codes it. And then about every maybe 300 samples, I take a break. And I go and I crunch the numbers. And I see if I've done better than I did you know, last, uh, last month. And a lot of times I'll do is um, I'll try a new technique. I'll try the technique for a while, and then I'll go crunch the numbers and see if it actually had a statistical improvement or not. And that's the biggest thing. I just I don't waste my time on stuff that doesn't actually improve the bug rate, um, you know, the defect rate. So, like, for example, um, at first I wasn't doing code coverage. I wanted to see if code coverage improved your testing, right, the coverage of your test code or your test code having coverage. I wanted to see if that improved quality. So I didn't do any code coverage, measured all my, uh, my defect rates and figured out what my average defect rate did, maybe about seven or 800 samples. And then I started doing code coverage and beefing up my code coverage. So I spent about maybe a month improving the code coverage. And in C code, it's real hard to get really good coverage because so many lines do so much stuff. But I got it up to about maybe 60%. And then I went and crunched the numbers again to see if increasing the code coverage in test improved my defect rate. And what happened is it didn't improve my defect rate. My defect rate was still about the same. But what it did improve was when I made changes, like if I had to do refactoring, it reduced the amount of time to get my defects back down. 
So you make a change, you do your refactoring, your defects go up, and then you have to spend time fixing all that. So with heavier, like more test coverage, made it go down quicker. But it didn't really improve my defect rate much. And there's some complexity in that. When you have more coverage, you're seeing more of your defects, so that's part of it. But I found that really test coverage doesn't really ju- it doesn't really justify an improvement in quality initially. It's mostly just it improves your, um, your time to fix later. Uh, but otherwise, it's some weird stats crunching, and you know, and the process actually comes from the capability maturity models guys, uh, Watts Humphreys personal software process. So all you got to do is go get his book, go through what he recommends, and the key is as you code, keep metrics, and then crunch the numbers and see if that's improving things for you. And that's really all it is. Another thing you've talked about often and. Mentioned it in a lightning talk on Saturday was just HTTP, HTTP generally as a protocol, and even had a whole plan for if you were going to rewrite internet protocols for scratch from scratch. Why is why do you think HTTP is such a bad protocol? So the the thing I tell people is <laughs> the problem with HTTP is that it was kind of created in the dark ages of the internet when people still were using. Um, line-ended protocols or streamable protocols. And the problem is, is that it, that works great when you're doing text, like SMTP or, you know, IRC or anything like that. But when you start transmitting digital stuff, you know, images and things like that, binaries, having line endings like MIME boundaries and stuff just doesn't work. And the problem in HTTP is that it has a framing issue. So if you go look at the spec, it's got four different ways to frame the size of a request. It can use MIME boundaries. It can use chunked encoding. It can use uh, multi-part MIME. It can even, even its problem with pipelining and keep alives. There's no framing. It has issues with uh, graceful close. You don't know if the client should close or the server should close or it's all ambiguous or what happens if I send 20 requests to a server and then stop? Does the server process them all? There's all this amb- ambiguity in like the specification and everything. So the cry and shame is that you know it works great. Everyone's based a ton of money and a ton of business on HTTP, but now we're getting the semantic web coming out and basing all of its stuff on HTTP. And I kind of think of that as like putting Einstein's brain on a crack whore's body. It's just like the worst foundation for transmitting very like good data. And you're not going to see it change, right? It's not going to change. There's too much money in making it run on web servers and on on like the existing HTTP protocol. And then people bastardize and abuse the hell out of it they try to put chat on it they try to put uh, asynchronous messaging like the twitter guys they try to put uh, you know soap rpc protocols over it you know the overhead of that is ridiculous it's like 500 bytes a pop just to be able to send a simple you know query plus the xml overhead of soap is just ridiculous so for me my kind of recent passion has been basically if i were going to sit down and design a protocol right and, you know i say like if you're going to bitch about something try to fix it so if i'm going to design a protocol what would i do and so that's what the Utu protocol is trying to do. It's doing it in a small scale, testing out a few ideas and things, trying different framing mechanisms, trying different things to do stuff. And I'm basically going to start writing about, look, this is why HTTP sucks. And this is why I'm using or how I'm doing my thing. And then this is why we should probably start looking at new protocols for stuff. I don't think HTTP will ever be replaced. But I'm starting to tell people, if you're thinking about doing something new and first thing you do is you run towards a REST interface, consider writing a side little protocol or find a protocol that's like more in line with the app you're trying to do. Like if you're doing messaging off of HTTP, that's just miserable. You can use uh, Jabber, which also kind of sucks. There's um, AMQP, which is a message queuing thing. There's all sorts of other options. Um, but for me, it's just that 
that's HTTP is horrible. And keep in mind, I've written an HTTP server and I used a parser that's based on their grammar and I've seen all the nasty corners and there's a lot of things I'm actually protecting Mongrel users from because there's some just stuff that's just disgusting and should never even be in there. I was thinking about this and definitely in the browser, we're pretty much tied to a lot of this, but people are doing some crazy things with Flash and it's almost like with a little Flash widget in a browser, you could then start using your own protocol back to some server without just having to be fully tied to the web browser. Do you think that's a good way to go or does most of this kind of effort need to be just away from the browser and starting over from scratch? Well, the beauty of the browser with Flash is that it's a completely packaged, very easy to deploy to platform. So yeah, doing it in the browser is, is you know fantastic. And HTTP is a really good kind of like heavy lifter. You can get tons of data out. You can get people's apps to them. You can do like, you know, a lot of really great apps on it. The browser is a really well-known platform. I mean, it's annoying because you've got 20 different browsers to deal with, but you can pretty much get a solid app up and running with it, you know. So the nice thing about Flash is that, yeah, you can actually do your own socket programming. So, yeah, if you have a side protocol and you need to do, you know, some programming in it, Flash could be a really good option. And especially with Adobe pimping it and pushing it as hard as it can and putting it on mobile phones, too. That's another really good one. So you're going to get this, you know, this, this ability to distribute stuff out to mobile phones and use whatever protocol you want, in theory, right? Um, but a really good example of why that's important is just um, doing upload progress. So right now, it's retarded. If I, write a, if I write a protocol now and I want to transmit a file, like FTP or whatever, what I do is I open a socket and I count how many bytes I've sent over it. And that's how I know how much I've sent. I tell you 20%, right? I, give, I can do estimates. Upload progress right now with HTTP, if I open a socket, I start sending the file, and then I start making requests to the server to ask it how much I've sent to it. That's retarded. Why do I ask the server how much data I've sent on a socket? Okay? That's retarded. So part of it is that the browsers just have broken-ass socket, socket APIs. I should never have to do that. I should be able to say, send that file and do this callback to tell me when uh, as many bytes pass in whatever time, right? So that's kind of the core of what I'm getting at is it's not necessarily just HTTP being broken, but it's kind of like the whole foundation of it. Web servers are inconsistent. Browsers are inconsistent. It just sucks to work on this stuff. And, and frankly, it's kind of burning me out. I don't really like to do it as much these days, but um, I keep slogging on so that other people have something to <laughs> base their new cool apps on. But frankly, the Utu is like the thing that I'm experimenting with, and all I hope that comes out of that thing is that it gives people ideas for maybe the next generation of protocol designers to go out and kind of do something different, something new, right, instead of replicating all the bad, bad ideas. So finally, tell us about Utu. You're going to be saving the Internet with hate. This is the year of hate, although we're in May, so I guess we're kind of partway through that maybe we can – it's the financial year, the fiscal year of hate or something. But what's Utu? <laughs> It's the fiscal year of hate. That's it, yeah. I love the IRS. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, basically, people who don't know it, uh, just you can basically find out that I shaved my head and grew a goatee. And I'm telling people it's my year of hate. Uh, it's basically because I'm uh, you know, working on some protocols and some stuff that's uh, on the evil side. And one of them is Utu. It's U-T-U is how it's spelled. And it's basically the Maori word for this revenge justice legal system that they had in New Zealand for a long time. It's also the word for the uh, Sumerian god of the dead. It all fits into how the protocol works. It's really cool. 
and you can go to savingtheinternetwithhate.com. It's totally open source. I don't really think I'll make any money on it. I'm just doing it because it's fun, and I'm kind of sick of web programming, and I'd like to do something with chat. And the main thrust of it is I hate IRC. It should die. I think all of you guys who are making IRC suck need to go away too. So I'm designing Utu so that it kills off IRC, shows people how I think protocols should be designed, and sets up a good foundation for fully identified centralized protocols. I'm sick of P2P. I don't want porn traders and kitty porn guys and all these dudes who think they need to be anonymous getting on my system. I want, you, I want to know exactly who Jeffrey Grosenbach is, and I'm talking to that guy. I don't want to be talking to some dude who's an astroturfer trying to get me to buy penis pills. So the main thing with Utu is it's a sender pays messaging system. The idea is that when you hate someone, you can tell them you hate them by telling, paying a bit of hate to a hub, and I'll tell you what hate is in a second, and when the, you pay that amount to the hub, then the hub makes that dude pay it from then on if he wants to talk to you or talk into a chat room. And you can also block. It's fully encrypted. I'm going to try and make it invitation only. I can make it when you invite someone and the guy you invite is a dick. Well, then he turns around and he the hate that he gets gets applied to you in a little bit. So if you invite a bunch of jerks, you're not going to be able to talk too much. And the hate is a cryptographic hash cache calculation. So it's pretty much established. It's nothing new. None of the crypto is new. I'm not going to invent anything. It's just all kind of an implementation. And the hash cache is literally you get some crypto you got to calculate. It uses up a bit of your CPU. It's cryptographic, so we know who you are. We know your public and private or your public key, and we know that you did it. You sign it, and then after that, you paid the toll, and then the other guy has to start paying that toll. And it's variable, so you can say I hate people out of 10. I hate people out of 15, out of 25, out of 32. They'd need like a billion computers and a couple billion years and the sun will end and we won't have to worry about that guy anymore um assuming you can pay that <laughs> so the big thing is it's right now it's up and it's kind of up and running it's just a thing i've been tinkering on for a while but a lot of people really like the idea and so i'm trying to get it out there's a ruby client for it uh the client doesn't need you can actually use uh, a little tiny binary that compiles anywhere uh called the mendicant and it basically sits between you and the hub, and you just blast these really simple messages to the mendicant. The mendicant does all the bullshit of talking to the hub, and then you get to join the network. And there's already a Ruby library. It's about maybe 500 lines of Ruby. does all the stuff you need. You can connect to the hub, do your chats, do all that good stuff, and a couple sample chat clients. It's still real low-fi. There's no like the capabilities for doing the hate stare, but I haven't really worked it into the server yet. But it's coming out about this week. I should have code up. People should be able to download it and play with it. And it's not invitation only yet. So it's good for people to get in. I want people to bust it. I want people to destroy that thing. I want to make sure this thing is like a tight little fortress in a feudal kingdom surrounded by Mongol hordes that are coming to try and kill it from IRC, right? That's what we need to get. And then it'll be invitation only. And maybe I'll make people pay. And I might even throw in some trademarks in the protocol so I can sue spammers who abuse the protocol, right? Because you can enforce trademark law. <laughs> Any ideas are up for grabs. You got ideas? Send them to me, man. I'm all for it. Well, thanks for the chat. You've been all over the place. Where are you going to be next? I'm down in Florida right now, and I'm uh, working on a site down there. And uh, it's sort of up. I'll just pimp it real quick. It's called CityClick, C-I-T-Y-C-L-I-Q.com. And after that, I'm going to be up in uh, New York. I'm going to move back here and uh, going to try and rock it in New York for you know maybe a year or so. And uh, I, I love New York. It's a great place, uh, assuming it's not winter or summer. 
<laughs> you need lots of AC in the summer. <laughs> Otherwise, and I'm also going to be at RailsConf, and um, I may try to do a couple more regional conferences. The the GoRuco conference was really good. It was a really good day of uh, you know just cool people, small conferences, a bunch of like-minded folks from the region. I think it was really good. Uh, a lot of people actually already knew people, so it was it was a really neat, uh, fun time. And um, uh, Obi will probably hear this, but. Uh, Dude, you're a little slosh that one night, and uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't think that was a woman. This has been the Ruby on Rails podcast. Thanks to your support, I'll be going full time on Peep Code Screencast starting next month. Thanks also to Sebastian Delmont of Street Easy for putting me up for a few nights at his house in New York City. <laughs>